Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is uh, good to be uh, with you uh, again this morning and to have this uh, opportunity uh, to bring uh, God's Word to you. Uh, it is, as John says, uh, an old uh, stomping ground, and uh, it is good to be uh, good to be back. Uh, you're often uh, in my thoughts and uh, in my in my prayers. So, as I said, it is a real uh, privilege uh, to be to be back. I'm going to, as John said, look uh, uh, at Revelation again in this continuing series. Um, We're going to think about the church at Pergamum uh, in uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2. You see some of the the remnants of Pergamum on the screen uh, behind us, so you can still uh, go and visit at least the the ruins, and there'll be one or two other uh, pictures of it as we we go through. So so we're going to read um, Revelation chapter 2. And verse 12 um, through to 17. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who is the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, for Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And this is the word of God. When Prince Harry uh, was in court a few weeks ago in a phone hacking uh, case, the, the media generally noted that despite his passion uh, and bluster, uh, he offered very little by way of evidence. And it led uh, one cartoonist to depict him in this way, that he was swearing to tell my truth, my whole truth, and nothing but my truth. And it reflects a, a dilemma that we face uh, in society today as we ask Pilate's famous question what is truth and all around us we witness uh, what has been described as truth decay Uh, we see it notably in the the public arena politicians that seem uh, can't even answer the most straightforward questions and as a result our trust in politicians is at an all-time low were you at that party? Well, depends what you mean by party, uh, and, and so it so it goes. Of course, we also live in the great era of conspiracy theory, where people, it seems, will believe just about anything, including people who believe clandestine groups. In some cases, they believe aliens disguised as humans secretly control our world. People even struggle to give simple answers to, to very simple questions. Can only women have babies? Uh, 
how do you answer that today? What used to be village gossip and rumor has now gone global in our global, global village, not least thanks to Twitter. No one checks facts today. Uh, they just retweet and retweet and retweet. Um, we saw that recently of uh, the uh, whole scandal over the BBC uh, presenter. But above all, perhaps, truth has become highly personal. If truth exists, then what may be true for you uh, may not be necessarily true for me. And no one has the right to challenge my truth. It's the ultimate expression of human freedom, that we have the right to construct our own truth. And woe betide the person who dares to say that the emperor has no clothes on. And all of this has led to the rather cynical conclusion that some people have that today the truth is what you can get people to believe. Whatever you can get people to believe, that is the truth. This situation, of course, challenges the church because at the heart of the church's life is a belief in truth. Not your truth or my truth, but the truth. What the famous Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth. We believe in true truth. We confess the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one who promised you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Who said he would send his spirit who will guide you into all truth. Truth lies at the heart of the Christian faith. But that's a conviction that brings huge challenges to us today in our society. When we turn our attention to Jesus' message to the church at Pergamum, we also see that truth is central to what he has to say to them, this whole matter of truth. But we also know that as Jesus finishes each message, he does so with the words, whoever has ears, let, ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a message for us all as Christians as we seek to make our way in what has been dubbed the post-truth society. Now these messages, as you probably know by now, uh, follow a, a pattern, uh, and this pattern will be no different uh, for the church at Pergamum. Uh, Jonathan referred to them as letters, and uh, I always refer to them as messages. I don't think they're letters, I think they're messages. Uh, but uh, Jonathan, you're in good company, uh, because I say this every year when I'm teaching this in Revelation, which uh, the director Cornhill uh, says, well, John Stott says they're letters to the churches, and he claims he's in good company, uh, to which I say, what would John Stott know? So, um, so, so, so. But they still have me back each year. So, so. so I say these messages follow a, a, certain, uh, a certain pattern. I say Pergamum's no different. And like the other messages, uh, the Lord Jesus addresses the, the church uh, through this mysterious figure, the angel. And if you want to know who the angel is, ask Drew when he gets back. I'll give him something to think about, uh, think about uh, his holidays. And as he does, so he identifies himself uh, with these, the words, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Uh, and like John's other, uh, sorry, like the Lord's other self-descriptions, this one's drawn from John's vision back in chapter 1 and verse 6. And the revelation, uh, the double-edged sword, is an image of judgment. The Lord Jesus is the judge. 
He is the judge not only of the nations, but as we will see in this message, he is also the judge of the church. And having identified himself in this way, and then the Lord Jesus makes a statement telling the church at Pergamum what he knows about them. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, there are two elements, I think, to this, uh, this statement. First of all, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. The statement, I know where you live, uh, does not usually have positive connotations, does it, particularly if you live uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, but here it does have uh, particularly uh, important connotations. The Lord Jesus, in other words, is saying to this church, he knows all about the situation in which the Christians in Pergamum find themselves. They live where Satan has his throne. And commentators usually take this uh, as a reference to the, the many impressive buildings in this city. Impressive buildings that were uh, dedicated to pagan worship. Uh, and these included the Acropolis uh, above the city, dedicated to the, the victory of the Olympian gods. It had an altar 120 feet long and 60 feet high. And in the uh, museum, uh, the Turkey city of what is now Bergamum, uh, they've recreated, uh, they've made a recreation of this, this altar to give us some uh, impression of what this famous altar uh, looked like. But that wasn't all. They also had a temple dedicated to the goddess Athena, a temple to the god Dionysius, who was associated with fertility, uh, a temple to the god Asclepius, the god of healing, and a temple devoted to the worship of the emperor, the divine Caesar uh, Augustus. This was a city in the grip of pagan worship, which, as Revelation will go on to make clear, is really a front for the activity of Satan as he opposes God and his people. And as the Lord Jesus addresses the church here in Pergamum, he says, I know all about the difficult circumstances in which you live. But secondly, in this statement, Jesus says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. He knows all about the nature of this pagan city, but he also knows about their faithfulness to him in the midst of these adverse circumstances. Particularly, he knows how they remained faithful, even when Antipas, one of their brothers, was martyred because of his faithful witness to the Lord Jesus. This happened, no doubt, there were temptations. Temptations, as there always are in such circumstances, to, to forsake the Lord. To once more slip back into that easy-going, pagan way of life. But this didn't happen to them. They remained faithful to the gospel. Now, these are, no doubt, words of great encouragement for these Christians here in Pergamum this small island of Christians in a raging sea of paganism. No doubt at times they felt overwhelmed. No doubt at times they were asking themselves, is this really all worth it? No doubt there were times when that fear was almost overwhelming as in the days of Antipas. But the Lord Jesus says to them, I know all about your situation. 
I know all about your situation. I know your faithfulness. Well, how does he know? Well, that takes us back, doesn't it, to chapter 1 and verse 20, which makes clear that Jesus walks in the midst of his people and he holds them in his hand. He walks in the midst of his people and he holds them in his hand. And these words ought to be great words of encouragement to us also. We too live in a hostile society. Christians are not only considered to be a bit odd today, if you like, many quarters they're also despised. Many quarters Christians today are believed to be dangerous people. And we too live under enormous pressure to conform to the godless worldview that engulfs our society. Sometimes, of course, it seems it would just be easier to give in, to go with the flow. But the Lord Jesus knows where we live. He knows what it costs us to remain faithful to him. He knows because he walks in the midst of his people and he holds us in his hand. And what he knows about the church, he knows about our individual circumstances. He knows the pressures that you face in work, in school, in college, maybe even in your home. He knows your situation. He knows what it costs for you to remain faithful to him on a daily basis. Because he's with you and he holds you in his hand. My dad knew a soldier who fought in the British Army during the Korean War. He said one of the, the North Korean tactics, he said, was to attack um, the, the, their positions. Uh, and they did so with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And they said these people would just run at, at the defensive lines. Thousands, wave after wave. Uh, during one such attack, the position this man was in was completely overrun by the sheer weight of North Korean soldiers. And he said, as they were being overrun, he and a colleague survived. How? Because they took off their uniforms and ran with the crowd. And such were the numbers, nobody even noticed. They were running along with thousands of other, uh, other people. And that's what Satan would like us to do. Simply to remove our Christian uniform and run with the crowd. The unnoticeable in the crowd. But the Lord Jesus says, don't give in to that temptation. I know where you live. I know your circumstances. I am with you. And I hold you in my hand. Now, in the pattern of, of these messages to the churches, there then follows a statement from the Lord Jesus about the condition of, of the church. And having commended this church at Pergamum for their faithfulness, what Jesus now says about the state of the church might come as a bit of a shock. For he says in verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. What could Jesus possibly have against this faithful, persecuted church? He continues, There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching 
of the Nicolaitans. For all their faithfulness, even in the face of persecution, they still entertained false teachers. And here, this particular false teacher that Jesus thinks of is called Balaam. That's not his actual name. Uh, rather, he was like the Old Testament figure, Balaam, who uh, sought to entice the Israelites to sin uh, so that they committed sexual immorality and sacrificed food to idols. Uh, we read the story of Balaam uh, in the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers uh, 31, uh, verse 16. We see that after several misadventures, he persuaded the Israelites to engage in idolatry and immoral worship, along with the Moabites. And he did this for money, even knowing that these things were not honoring to God. They also, Jesus says, tolerated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans are a group uh, that we've already uh, heard mentioned back uh, in the message to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2 uh, and verse 6. We don't know anything about this uh, mysterious group other than they engaged in false worship, which leads Jesus to say that he hated them. So when the church of Pergamum had endured much for the sake of the Lord and had remained faithful, that the, yet the Lord Jesus warns them because they tolerate false teaching. Why? Because truth matters to the Lord Jesus. Truth matters to the Lord Jesus. Whatever else may be going on in the church, truth matters to the Lord Jesus. And I think we see at least two reasons why this is the case. First of all, we go back to the message at Ephesus. We read those words that Jesus hates, the Nicolaitans, because they spread false teaching. And ultimately, false teaching is rooted in lies. And lies ultimately emanate from Satan, whom Jesus describes in John 8 and 44, as the father of lies. One of the, the ways in which Satan enslaves us is through falsehood. He seduces people to believe lies. Lies about God. Lies about the world, lies about ourselves. And at the heart of Jesus' mission, as we've seen, is he comes to bring the truth that sets us free. Before we were Christians, we were enslaved by the lies of Satan. He kept us in the darkness. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is how the Bible describes you. You're deceived by Satan. And the Lord Jesus alone can set you free. So for the church here to admit false teaching is to admit Satan into the very midst. Here's a church that has been battling Satan very ostensibly in the midst of persecution, resisting him in his very throne room. And yet at the same time, they've admitted him in through the back door of false teaching. Secondly, we see from the description of Balaam that his teaching encouraged Christians to compromise with the world around them. His teaching permitted people on the one hand to belong to the church, while on the other hand, he said, well, you can indulge in your, your lifestyle of immorality and idolatry. And so often this is what we find. False teaching and wrong behavior go together. When truth is compromised, well, very often we see that it's compromised to accommodate certain sinful behaviors. 
because that is the only way that the church can compromise with sinful behavior by denying the truth, the plain truth, of what the Bible teaches. Now these are the reasons that truth matters to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the reasons that while this church has suffered so much, he still calls them to account. He tells them there's a greater issue going on than your suffering for the sake of the gospel. The greater issue is you have compromised with the truth. You've compromised the truth. As I said at the outset, I think that message has a, a particular resonance in the age in which we live. We live at a time when we have particularly laissez-faire attitudes to the truth. No one is sure if truth exists. And if it does, no one can actually know that truth. And the danger is that we can let the spirit of the age pervade our churches. Like the church at Pergamon, we can let Satan into our churches through false teaching. Like the church at Pergamon, we can dilute the truth to accommodate certain sinful behaviors. But the Lord Jesus is saying the church must hold the truth at a premium. The church must hold the truth at a premium. In our own day, I think we face two particular dangers in this regard. The first is that we can allow the culture around us to guide the beliefs of the church. We can allow the culture around us to guide the beliefs of the church. One of the courses I teach in college traces the developments of theology from the 18th century through to the present day. It's in many ways the story of how theological liberalism came to take hold of the Western church. How did this happen? Well, it happened and continues to happen because at successive points the church allowed the culture to guide its beliefs. People read the Bible in the light of the surrounding culture rather than examining the culture through the lens of the Bible. People thought theirs was the, the very apex of culture and human achievement. People 150 years ago thought society could not get any better. Thought society could not improve. They thought they'd be able to solve all the world's problems through, through better education, through technological advances. Here they were at the very apex of society. Well, when we look back over the history of the last 100, 150 years or so, what do we see? Well, we don't hear anyone saying today, weren't the Victorians wonderful? Weren't the Victorians absolutely wonderful? We need to be more like them. Society, culture, attitudes have moved on. We discover in the words of the Victorian writer, Dean Ayer, that if you marry the spirit of the age, you will be a widow in the next. Culture is constantly shifting. The things that people thought were great certainties, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, they now often look ridiculous. And the same will be true of our age. We think we're so advanced. We think we're so enlightened. But in a hundred years' time, people will look back at our culture and they will laugh at us. They will laugh at us. But as Isaiah tells us, all people are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. 
God's word that remains certain. It's God's word that remains sure in the midst of a shifting culture. We must not let the culture guide our beliefs. The second danger is that we allow our feelings to guide our beliefs. We live at a time when people are hugely guided by their feelings. This is what happens when people say there's no truth. They're no longer guided by any kind of external reality. They're guided by their feelings. The great motto of our age is follow your heart. Follow your heart. I'm afraid I've got to that stage in life where I like country music. And life has, has moved on a little bit and I've uh, got to that stage. And uh, you maybe uh, heard that uh, song. Uh, uh, don't judge me. Uh, you maybe have heard that song by, by Casey Musgraves, which I think could sum up the spirit of our age. It could be our national anthem. She, she sings this song about all this conflicting advice that we received and, and how do we deal with that conflicting advice? She says, just follow your arrow wherever it points. Just follow your arrow wherever it points. In other words, follow your own heart. Follow your own ideas. Again, this can happen to us as churches. We can be guided merely by our feelings. Our feelings about what we think is right about what we think is compassionate, about what we think is authentic. Yet the worst thing we can do is follow our hearts. The worst thing we can do is follow our hearts. Because as the prophet Jeremiah reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Our feelings are not a sure guide. Instead, the question that must guide us is Paul's question to the Romans. What does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? It is the living and enduring Word of God that must guide us. If we listen to our culture, if we listen to our feelings, then the danger is we'll end up like this church at Pergamum. But whatever else we might do well, we will be compromised. And the Lord Jesus in this message warns us against the danger of compromising with the truth. Truth matters to him as he rescues us from the realm of Satan, which is like a hall of mirrors at a fun fair, where everything around us is distorted. And the issue of truth matters, as we see here, because what we believe then affects the way that we behave. And that is why we're often prepared to compromise on truth, because it allows us to behave how we please. It's the serpent in the garden saying to Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? Uh, some years ago, uh, the well-known author and Christian leader, uh, Tony Campo, spoke in, spoke in Strandtown, I'm sure uh, some of you I remember. That must be about 30 years ago. Uh, and one of the things that he said on that occasion, a couple of things he said on that occasion really uh, have always stuck with me, but one of he said was he was often invited to speak on college campuses, uh, being such a well-known writer uh, and speaker. And when he was there, he said he, he, he met young people and they would say to him, well, I used to be a Christian. But you know, I can't believe the Bible anymore and all, all of that stuff. And he would answer, probably as only, only Tony Campolo could answer, and say, well, I would just ask him then, how long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? stuck with me because that's how it is. We distort the truth to justify our sinful behavior. 
And that's what the Lord Jesus is warning us against here. Distorting the truth so that we can engage in sinful behavior. Now following the pattern of the messages, there then follows words, these words about the condition of the church, some words of exhortation. Jesus says to them, repent therefore, otherwise, verse 16, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, it's quite a shocking statement. That if they do not repent, then Jesus will fight against them. And he will do so with the sword of his mouth, which is seen as a symbol of his judgment. Jesus will judge the church. It's perhaps not something that we think about an awful lot, and yet we do find it throughout the pages of the New Testament. We are accountable to the Lord Jesus, and he will judge the church. Remember Paul's words to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Or Peter's words to the churches in Asia Minor. 1 Peter 4 and 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. But what we're being told here is not only a message of a final judgment, but a message of judgment in the present. Which again is another New Testament theme. The Lord Jesus judges his church in the present. He continually works to purify and refine his church. He cuts off those parts of the church that are lifeless and he gets rid of them. And that's a fearful prospect. And therefore, this part of the message is vitally important. Verse 17, he says, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to our churches. This warning and this exhortation are words not only for Pergamum, Pergamum but they're words for every church. We must listen to the Lord Jesus. We must ask ourselves as a church, what do Jesus' words mean for us? How must we apply them? What must we do? Are there things that we need to repent of? But Jesus' message to the church at Pergamum and to all who hear does not end on that sobering note. Rather, it ends with a promise. A promise to this church and to every church if it will overcome in its present struggles and repent. Again, this is the, how each message ends. And Jesus says in verse 17, To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. It's the promise of reward. Jesus promises them hidden manna. Manna, of course, is the bread with which God fed his people in the wilderness. So what is hidden manna? Well, since it's hidden, that means it's not yet revealed. And it therefore seems likely to be a reference to how God will feed his people in the new age. In other words, if they overcome, they will share in God's blessing in the new age. So he says he will give them a hidden manna. He said they will also give them a white stone. And in the ancient world, a white stone was the equivalent of an admission ticket. And here it is a new name written on it. That name is probably a reference to the name of Jesus. Because only his people truly know his name. So this whole image might be interpreted as meaning that the person who overcomes will receive a personal invitation to Christ's banquet in the age to come. The Lord Jesus is telling his people, as he does throughout the book of Revelation, we are involved in a great struggle. 
a great struggle with Satan. And it's one in which we must arm ourselves with the truth and not compromise with the truth. For that truth is our great weapon in which we can stand against the devil's lies. It's that truth that enables us to, to stand firm in our faith. It's that truth that enables us to proclaim the gospel to the world. For it is the truth of Jesus Christ alone that can set the people of our world free when they have been captured by Satan and his lies. The Lord Jesus is also telling us in this message that our struggle is worth it. Our struggle is worth it. Because when we overcome in that struggle, we will receive that eternal reward. Where we will be with God. Where we will sit at his table forevermore. Where we will be fully satisfied in him forever and ever and ever. May God bless his word this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these messages that remind us that you are in the midst of your people, and that you know all about us, you know all about the challenges that we face, the difficulties that we face, you know about our true condition. Father, we do pray that you would guide us and direct us in all truth. Even as we've read your word this morning, give us ears to hear that we might respond to your word in faith and in obedience. 